0: Well, good morning. Uh, we have uh, the task ahead of us this morning of studying First Peter chapter five, uh, verses six through the end of the letter. If you've got your Bible, please go ahead and turn there now. Uh, this will take us all the way through the end of the letter that we've been studying for uh, the sort of second half of this year. I think Matt next week will uh, sort of do one more sermon as a wrap up overview, uh, but today it'll take us through the last week by week set of verses that we're going to be doing and. Uh, this section of the letter really serves as Peter's final instructions to his readers, sort of a summary of many of the things that he has said so far in the letter. And uh, in that way, it really reminded me of when my parents dropped me off at uh, college. So they you know, helped me get everything unpacked. We went out to lunch. As they were getting in the car, they gave me a hug, and my dad said something like, you know, you know right and you know wrong, so do the right thing. And then my mom said something like, you know, don't forget to do your laundry and don't only eat Pop-Tarts, right? So I think that uh, it's something that they had told me a million times before, but they're sort of final words of wisdom to me as they were leaving me at college. And what Peter has for us here is these same set of instructions, sort of a final uh, words of wisdom to his readers as he uh, leaves them at the close of this letter. And he breaks them down into sort of three groups of commands. I've called them, the first one is humble yourself, The second one is, be sober-minded. And the third one is, look to future glory. And these three sets of commands aren't really built logically on each other. It's not as if the first one is necessary to understand the second, and therefore the third. Rather, they're connected around a single theme. And, And really, that theme is the theme of the whole letter, which is, what does it look like for followers of Jesus to wait for him to come again in hope? What is it like for followers of Jesus to live with hope? That's the theme that guides these final instructions and how we're going to spend most of our time unpacking it today. So if you have found uh, the passage, would you please stand in honor of God's word while I read for us from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, So you may have noticed uh, that this passage is broken into two sections. First, uh, verses 6 through 10, we're really going to spend, or 6 through 11 is where we're going to spend most of our time. The second section is sort of a signature block that's really common in ancient letters, sort of saying, by Sylvanus, who helped me write this, I'm sending this. We're not really going to spend a lot of time uh, covering that. Instead, focusing on the instructions that, that Peter is leading us with. And the first section, what really jumps out to me in verse 6 is this connection between humility and anxiety. I don't know if you noticed that, but it says humble yourselves so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And so the first thing that I notice about that is that humility and anxiety actually tend to work in opposite directions here. Right? Someone who is more humble is casting off their anxiety. So someone who's more humble is less anxious. And someone who is less humble is more anxious. Now, I will say, if uh, you are someone who struggles with anxiety, that, at first glance, may not be the most encouraging thing to hear in the world. Not only do I struggle with anxiety, but now you're telling me I'm not humble. Thank you very much. So uh, I will say, though, that as we unpack this verse together. I hope that it will become a really helpful verse to your soul as we consider what does it mean to deal with anxiety in this world. And so to do that, I want to unpack sort of each part of this uh, verse. The first part being, what does it mean to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? And to me, that's an image of someone swearing allegiance to a king. Someone who comes into the throne room of the king and says, I'm kneeling before you And submitting my life to yours. I'm giving up any claim on my own life. It's no longer my own. My life belongs to you, and therefore you have control, authority, and the responsibility to protect me as I now enter myself in your charge. That's what I think that first image of humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means. Your life is no longer your own. The second part of the sentence about casting your anxieties onto God. I, I want to uh, take a moment here and, and make a really important comment about the kind of anxiety that we're talking about. We're not talking about the physical manifestations of anxiety. We're not talking about the hand-sweating, heart-pounding, world-closing-in anxiety, the physical stress response. That's not what's going on here. That can be linked to the type of anxiety we're talking about, but it's not really what we're addressing uh, in the text this morning. Rather, I think we should define anxiety as that inner turmoil over the circumstances in your life. It's an inner angst, a stressful agitation or dread about the circumstances in your life. And, and what Peter is encouraging us to do here is to take those anxieties and cast them off. It's a sort of unburdening language that he's using and, and when I was thinking about it, what first came to mind was sort of a ship being cast off into the ocean, right? They've got the, the rope that's holding the ship to the dock and you, you lift it off and you throw it off and the, the boat sort of is adrift and goes into the ocean and I like that image because it sort of gets the notion of the unburdening of the anxiety but what I think it misses is it's not that we're just throwing our anxiety off into outer space. We're actually throwing our anxiety on to God, onto somebody who can carry it. And so I think that the image is much more like carrying something really heavy. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you're carrying something exceptionally heavy and you think you are about to drop it. And it's at that moment when someone comes to take it off your hands that you feel an enormous sense of relief. And the thing that I like about that image is it demands that you trust the person you're handing the thing to. The person you're handing the thing to has to be able to hold it, right? So when you walk in the back door and you're about to drop the groceries, you're not going to hand your eggs to your two-year-old. When you're carrying that really big piece of furniture, you're not going to hand it to one of your children because it's going to crush them. Here, when Peter tells us to cast our anxieties, to unburden our anxieties and put them onto God, it means that we trust God to be powerful enough to hold them. And so the, the connection then, In this first verse that I think is is really important for us to understand is that anxiety is the product of self-reliance, of a misplaced trust in our ability to control our own lives. When we fail to give up control of our lives, when we fail to submit to the mighty hand of God, then we cling on to our anxieties. We can't unburden them. That's the connection that Peter wants us to see. And so while anxiety often feels incredibly desperate, I think what we're meant to see here is that anxiety actually isn't desperate enough. Because anxiety believes that you have the ability to control something in your life. Anxiety fails to recognize that if you are responsible for the things in your life, then it is a guaranteed failure. Instead, what Peter is calling us to do is to put the cares of our lives onto God who is powerful enough to hold them and then relinquish the self-reliance that drives the anxieties over the circumstances in our lives. I think that's what's going on in this first section. And I'll tell you, there is nothing that uh, drives that point more carefully home to me than being responsible for children. When you are put in charge of a child's well-being, it can feel crushing because you would do anything to take care of your children's lives. You would do anything to protect them from the things of this world, from the pain, the suffering. But the reality is you can't. The reality is no matter how hard you try, you can't keep them from getting hurt. You can't keep them from the relationship pain that is inevitably going to come. You can't keep them from suffering, from sin and doubt. And until you realize that, there's just no way that you can really care for them. Otherwise, you are going to be plagued by an anxiety that thinks the safety and well-being of your children is dependent on you. And inasmuch as the physical well-being of my children could be a crushing weight. It's really the spiritual well-being of my children that could really crush me. Because there's nothing in the world that I want more than for my children to believe in Jesus. There's nothing that I want more than your children to experience that same salvation. And if that rests on me, then I'm in trouble. Because that means that every failure that I commit against them. Every time I speak a harsh word that is unfair, every time that I am imperfect, well, now I've ruined their souls. There's no room for failure. The stakes are too high when it comes to the salvation of your children's souls. And if you don't cast the anxieties of your children's salvation onto a father in heaven, you have no hope of doing it well. Friends, anxiety holds on to the misplaced notion that we have any power to control things in our lives. And so when you see it rearing its ugly head, when you feel that inner dread rising up in your soul about the circumstances in your life, I think this verse is incredibly helpful that we can see it is the product of self-reliance still in our heart. We aren't totally giving up control of our lives to God. And this is one of those moments where if you can see it, you can fight it. And so I think when you have the clear-mindedness to be thinking about your anxiety, not in the middle of the night when the panic is coming, but when you have the clear-mindedness to be thinking about your anxiety, that's the time to ask, what about my heart is still clinging to some misplaced notion that I could have any control over this thing in my life? That's what I think is the helpful part of this verse. But you know, there, there is another phrase to it that is so essential to understanding why we can cast our anxieties it comes in verse 7 it says we can cast all of our anxieties on God because he cares for you that's the kind of simple truth in the Bible that actually doesn't need a lot of unpacking God cares for you whatever else he has on his mind, whatever else the affairs of the universe are requiring of him, whatever other spiritual battles he is attending to, God in heaven cares for you. And you know, every time the Bible talks about anxiety or worry, it's immediately followed by the reassurance that our Father cares for us. You might be thinking of the time when Jesus talks to his disciples and says, why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Your Father in heaven, he takes care of the birds, and aren't you more valuable than they are? Your Father in heaven cares for you, and I think if you are somebody who struggles with the kind of anxiety that this verse is talking about, then the balm for your soul over and over again is the promise that God cares for you. He is strong enough. He is a father who in heaven who is a king and his right hand is powerful. He has authority and dominion and he cares for you. And don't underestimate the power of the Bible's simple truth in your life. God cares for you. And friends, I think sometimes that's just hard to believe because we look at our circumstances and we let our circumstances tell us what's true about God. We look around and we feel like we're suffering. We've got pain that won't let us go. We've got a chronic disease that won't go away. We've got sin that, for whatever reason, God hasn't taken away from us yet. And we sit in those moments and we say, God, don't you care for me? And this verse Tells us that whatever else those circumstances mean, for whatever reason God has left them in your life, it's not because He doesn't care for you. It's not because He doesn't care for you. How do you know? Because He sent His Son to die for you. We can't be in the habit of asking God, What have you done for me lately? We can't be in the habit of letting only our most recent circumstance define the goodness of God in our lives. We can look back. We can see that Jesus died for our sin. He rose and conquered the grave. And he did that. He did that because he cared for us. And if he has already given us his son, how is he going to keep from us any good thing? What does it look like for Christians to wait for Jesus to come again in hope? Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now the second thing as we transition here is that he tells us to be Sober-minded and watchful. And I think this is a really important connection because sometimes we hear this first command of cast your anxieties and we feel like it gets rid of any personal responsibility that we have for our faith, right? So if God cares for us, we can just sort of be lazy in our faith and he'll take care of everything and it's fine, I can just kick back and relax. That's not what the Bible says at all. Well, I was very clear about our own personal responsibility in our faith, and I think what, what Peter's doing here is he's reminding of that, reminding us of that. And it's something that he said before, be sober-minded has come up a couple of times in this letter, and the way that we've defined that is to mean pay attention to your faith with some urgency. Being sober-minded means paying attention to your faith with some Urgency. The analogy that Matt used a couple of weeks ago was a driving analogy, right? That you can drive on a clear highway on a sunny day or you can drive in a snowstorm. Your attention to what's going on around you is going to be much more focused in that snowstorm. The language here, though, I think brings to mind the image of of taking a walk in the wilderness. So you can take a walk at Radnor Lake on a paved trail on a sunny day with people around, and you can enjoy yourself. You don't even have to pay attention to where you're walking hardly. Or you can take a walk in the wilderness of Alaska or Colorado where there are no trails, where there are animals there that are dangerous for you. And that really changes the nature of how you're paying attention to what's going around. And if I told you, like this verse does, that there's a man-eating lion on the loose then that's really going to change how you're walking in the wilderness, isn't it? You're going to be intensely focused on what's going around. And that's what this is calling us to. Peter here tells us the devil is seeking to devour your faith. He's seeking to devour your faith. He's seeking to use the circumstances in your life to cause you to question the goodness of God. He's using the circumstances in your life to make you think that you are alone. It reminds me a lot of the book that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Screwtape Letters. It's a a book about a sort of more senior demon writing to a younger demon about how to sort of enslave this uh, guy who's a sort of new Christian. And he says, here's how you're going to use all of these circumstances in his life to make him question his faith that's what's going on here and, and there's an immediate connection to suffering I think we can see that in the verse it says uh, don't be surprised right? that, uh, that you're going to suffer because it's being experienced by your brotherhood around the world right? we make the immediate connection with suffering that when hard things are happening in our lives that's going to cause us to question the goodness of God that I think makes sense but what I, I think this has a broader implication. It doesn't just say that the d- devil is out to devour us when there are things that are hard in our lives. The devil is out to devour us all the time. And that means especially when things are good, he's seeking to deepen your dependence on those material things in your life. And when things are good, that's when we're going to be careless. That's when we're not going to be paying urgent attention to what's going on in our faith. And, and Peter's saying whether things are good or whether you are suffering, Pay an urgent attention to matters of faith in your life because the devil is out there seeking to devour you. There is a man eating lion on the loose. So how do we resist? I think that's a question that Peter doesn't get to in this section being a sort of summary, last instructions. How do we resist in faith? I think is a really important question. And to me, the tools of faith are frequently described in the Bible as uh, sort of war elements right you might think of ephesians chapter 6 take up the whole armor of god that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil put on the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness use the word of god which is a sword put up your shield of faith that you might extinguish the arrows of the enemy Friends, the tools of faith are battle weapons against the devil who is seeking to devour us. And so in that way, they're not complicated. How do you pay urgent attention to your faith? You go to the word of God. You read it. You know it. You memorize it. You have it in your mind so that when you come to question the goodness of God, when you come to be attacked by the devil, you can wield a sword against his lies. How do you resist him in faith? You pray. Ephesians 6 talks about that, that we might pray for the saints who are being persecuted. John Piper famously calls prayer a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. And honestly, I think submitting ourselves in prayer is the link between these two commands. What does it look like to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God? You come to him in prayer, and you say, Father, I need help. Father, take care of me. Father, how long will you leave me like this? That is both the act of submission to a Father in heaven who is powerful and who loves you, and resisting the devil by being urgent-minded in your faith. Come to him in prayer, friends. The other thing that I think comes out here as a sort of guidebook for resisting the attacks of the devil against our faith is this notion of community. We so often believe that we're alone in our suffering and our anxiety. No one could possibly understand it, but actually we're called to be reminded here that our brotherhood around the world are experiencing the same kinds of things. We are not alone in our suffering. And so one of the ways that we resist the attacks of the devil on our faith is we look around and we use the people in our lives to support us we come to church even when it's hard and we hear the people singing about their own faith as an encouragement to ours you don't have to suffer through anxiety alone that's how we resist him so the last thing I'll say about that is it's not a one time thing I don't think The way anxiety seems to work in my life is sort of a tug of war between what I know to be true and the falsehoods that I hate to believe. There'll sort of be an enemy resurgence of an anxiety, and then I'll cast my anxieties on the Lord in prayer and by preaching truth to myself. And even two minutes later, I could see that anxiety sort of swelling back up in my, my heart. This is a battle that ebbs and flows throughout the course of our life and and one of the ways that we can do this is to continually cast our anxieties. Be reminded of that over and over again. I just didn't want you to hear this and think, oh, I'm struggling with anxiety so I must not have cast my anxieties on God. No, that's not how it works. This is an invitation to do it over and over and over again as that battle wages within our hearts. The final point that Peter makes for us here comes in verse 10 and after you have suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever amen what Peter leaves us with here is a vision of glory. The promise that our current experience is not the end of the story. So often we are plagued by the circumstances of this world that bring up the uncertainty and pain in our hearts. And we forget that those things are not the end of the story. See, where you're headed in your life has everything to do with how you can wait in hope. If you'll permit me to use the walking around in the wilderness uh, analogy one more time, we'll jump continents to South America, and I don't know if any of you have been to see Machu Picchu in uh, Peru. It's this amazing uh, sort of fortress built on the top of a hill by the Incan civilization, and uh, it's a pretty spectacular sight to see. And you can see it for a long way you can see it for a long way coming. And what's clear is that that is where you're headed. There's this trail called the Inca Trail. It goes for miles and miles and miles. And it's how people came to Machu Picchu. And the reason this matters is that while people are walking towards this sort of final destination, they don't know which way the trail is going to go necessarily. The trail actually can be pretty dangerous sometimes. You may have to go down into a valley where you can't, see where you're headed, or you may have to go around a curve that you didn't expect. You may be on the edge of a cliff that you feel like you're going to fall off. You don't always know the way that's in front of you, but what you do know is that you're walking towards a final goal and that the path you're on is driving you towards that amazing city on a hill. And I think that's why we're meant to keep glory in our mind, to keep the promise of a heavenly Jerusalem that will be ours as we're walking through this life we don't know which direction our life is going to take we do know though that the destination is secure heaven is coming for us that's one of the things that I think uh, Peter is so wonderful at in this, in this book is helping us understand that we have an inheritance that's ours in heaven he, he speaks about it in chapter 1 when he says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and it's kept in heaven for you and we are being kept for it and the thing that Peter wants us to remember is that we now live in a secure hope that heaven is waiting for us the way that he describes it here in chapter 5, is the eternal glory in Christ. That is a phrase that has so much depth to it, I feel like I could go on for a long time. But I want to pull out a couple of ideas from this, having this eternal glory in Christ. The first is that it is anchored in what Christ has done for us the hope that's ours, looks back to the cross of Jesus where he has already accomplished what he set out to. He has already purchased for us eternity with him. When he died and rose again, he proved his power over death, he proved a final victory over sin, and he secured for us a place in heaven for eternity in glory with him. The other part, the other part of this phrase that is so powerful is it tells us how we get it. We are promised an eternal glory in Christ. When Jesus died for our sins, we became unified with him. The Bible says that he he took us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we become members, heirs, of this promise through the atoning work of Jesus. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into it. Instead, it's given to you as a gift through the blood of Jesus. And so we now look forward to a time when the present age will fade away. And what Peter says here is in that moment of glory, we will be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. Now those things, I think, are meant to be around the same idea of peace and rest and joy that's going to be ours in heaven. It helped me when I was thinking about it to think about the opposites. So have you ever felt neglected or rejected by people, have you ever felt despised, or like people didn 't care for you or didn 't understand you? Have you ever been discredited? Have you ever felt weak? Have you ever felt destroyed? Well, Peter is reminding us is that present age where those things are all too common in our lives, that is not the end of the story instead. We look forward to a glory in Christ that's for all eternity. And in that, we will have restoration and confirmation. We will be strengthened and we will be established. (coughs) Friends, I think all throughout these verses, Peter is pointing us towards that future glory. Look back at verse 6. Humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Whoever gives up their life for the gospel surely will have eternal life. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will give you His glory. All the sad things in this life. They are not the end of the story. I think Peter, as he's leaving us with final instructions, knows all too well what difficult circumstances are in his life. He would have known what it was to wonder where his next meal came from. His friends would have known what it was like to live under the thumb of an opposing government. They would have seen illness and sadness. They would have been persecuted for their faith. They would have been beaten and struck down. He knew that anxieties were coming in this life. And he tells us, cast your anxieties onto a Father in heaven who loves you, who cares for you, who has already given given us his Son. You can trust him because he cares for you. He says, be sober-minded. Pay attention to your faith. Resist Resist the evil one who is out to devour you. Take up the whole armor of God. And then finally, he says, look forward to glory. To God be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we need help. We need help because the sounds of our anxieties seem to drown out the sounds of truth. Father, we need help because it's hard to see glory. But Father, I pray that you would remind us today that you care for us, that you would spur us on to an urgent and careful attention to our faith, and that you would put in our minds a vision of glory, that we would know that we are headed toward an eternal salvation and joy with you. Help us to walk in faith towards that heavenly city together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.